Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. Amen. I want to pick up where I left off a few Sundays ago when I shared with you that while growing up in the Episcopal Church and while I had had pleasant childhood experiences of Christianity and church, there was a time in late high school and early college when I got as far away as possible from church and Christianity and Christians. And it was due mostly to a group in my high school of aggressive, so-called evangelical born-again Christians. I've referred to that bad experience of Christians and of Christianity before without really spelling out what was so off-putting about that corrupted version of Christianity, what was and is so bothersome, theologically speaking, biblically speaking, spiritually speaking. Over the years, I've come to realize that, the, that there are three primary shortcomings or failings of corrupt Christianity. One is individualism. Two is arrogance. And three is inwardness. Unless you think I am unfairly singling out conservative Christianity, please hear me. Please rest unassured that conservative Christianity has no monopoly on these corruptions or failings. Progressive Christianity can fall into individualism, arrogance, and inwardness. Progressive Christians can be every bit as individualistic, arrogant, and inward-looking as anyone. So as I say these things, as I point this finger from this pulpit, I am mindful that when we point a finger at someone, we have three fingers pointing right back at us. But specifically, what I'm talking about is this. Individualistic Christianity is mostly about one's own personal journey. Whether that personal journey is, on the one hand, your confession of Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, or on the other hand, your confession of your journey into deeper levels of wokeness and awareness. In either case, those are important steps on a spiritual journey. They are important experiences. But they become corrupting. They become problematic when you and your journey become central. When knowledge comes at the cost of actually loving in a non-transactional way, people whose worldviews are different from your own. Arrogant Christianity is a Christianity that has all the answers and tolerates few questions. Arrogant Christianity considers doubt or the questioning of a premise as evidence of a weak or a fragile faith. And inward Christianity is all about one's own church. 
one's own worship style, one's own set of beliefs, as if God does not exist outside the box we have drawn, as if other churches or the work of the wider church, as if other worship styles, other sets of beliefs do not somehow adequately compare to us and how we do things. That's not a church. An individualistic, arrogant, and inward-looking church is not a church or a Christianity that people want to be a part of. Well, as I've told you a number of times before, during a time when I had rejected or run away from a version of Christianity like that, someone pulled me aside and told me that everything I object to about corrupt religion is found somewhere in the Bible. And as far as my being horrified by some Christians' rigid ideas about who gets it, who is saved, and who is damned, I was encouraged to read this passage that we've just heard this morning from the 25th chapter of Matthew, a passage which describes the final judgment. In it, Jesus comes in glory, accompanied by all the angels and is seated on the throne. The nations, all the nations, are gathered in front of him and are separated into two groups. The sheep are on the right and the goats are to the left. And he declares those at the right hand blessed by God and invites them to inherit the fullness of God's kingdom. Why are they blessed? Because they fed the judge king when he was hungry. They gave him something to drink when he was thirsty. They welcomed the judge king when he was a stranger clothed him when he was naked, nursed him back to health when he had gotten sick, and went to visit him when he was in prison. The sheep are confused because they don't recall doing that for the king judge. They don't recall doing that for Jesus. When? When did we see you hungry, Jesus? When did we see you thirsty or naked or sick or in prison? And that's when Jesus says, just as you did it to one of the least, you did it to me. And he turns to his left and declares them cursed and bound for eternal fires. And why? Why are they accursed? Why are they condemned? Because they did not feed the king judge when he was hungry or give him something to drink when he was thirsty. They did not welcome Jesus when he was a stranger, clothe him when he was naked, nurse him back to health when he'd gotten sick. They did not go to visit Jesus when he was in jail. They too are confused because they don't recall ever seeing the king judge Jesus hungry or thirsty, naked, sick, or in prison. And that's when he says, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Their lack of care for the least was a lack of care for Jesus. So, let this sink in. According to this passage, and not only this passage, but many others like it in Scripture, this passage is not an outlier. Do you know who's going to heaven? Do you know who gets it? People, individuals, and nations who, in this life, actually take good care of the little ones, the least, the lost, the lonely, the forgotten. Do you know who's going to hell? Who's far from God? People, individuals, nations, societies who neglected 
the little ones, the least, the lost, the lonely. So do you see how this passage is a corrective against corrupt Christianity of the left and the right? There is nothing individualistic in this passage. It's a judgment of nations, peoples, the ethos of an entire culture. There is nothing arrogant in this passage. Neither side has a clue if they are saved, why they are on the side that they're on, until they're told. And there's nothing inward. All their behaviors are outward. They're all about how people treated the least and the lost and the lonely. The sheep and the goats have the same problem, not knowing that God is already with us. God is already with us. That is a profound, profound and even mind-boggling statement about God and the nature of God. The God that we believe in, the God revealed in Scripture, is not distant, above it all, remote, inaccessible. Rather, God is nearby in human lives and easily found. One of the promises in the baptismal covenant puts it this way. Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? If we intend to keep that promise and find God, it's relatively easy. You can seek and serve Christ by helping stock manna food banks shelves, as many of you did the past couple of weeks through the blue bag drive, or through participating in All Souls and Beloved Village's Tiny Homes initiative, because Christ is in the face of the hungry and the thirsty and the unhoused. You can see, you can serve Christ in the faces of refugees, trying to flee to safety, trying to apply for asylum. You can serve Christ by insisting that it is the ethos of this nation to welcome the stranger, the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, and you can serve Christ by helping organizations such as Together Rising to reunite families who were separated as they were seeking asylum in this country. The All Souls Children First Committee has a new name, Focus on Children. And you can seek and serve Christ in the faces of children who are looking for adequate clothing this winter by participating in the 2020 Holiday Giving Program for the Children First Community Schools of Buncombe County. Because the King Judge Jesus is in the faces of people who want a warm coat. Are you looking for God? Christ has told us where God can be found. God is as nearby as a sick person or an incarcerated person. And you can seek and serve Christ when you love your sick or imprisoned neighbor as yourself. At the final judgment, do you want to be a sheep and not a goat? Belong to 
identify with, identify yourself with, get involved with a people, a culture, a community that cares for little ones, the least, the lost, the lonely. And one final thought, in, in thinking all this through, it is important to remember that salvation is not something that we achieve. Salvation is not something that we achieve. As the Presbyterian pastor Lindsay Armstrong says, salvation is something we discover often when we least expect it. Notice that the righteous are surprised to realize that they had cared for the king of creation. Evidently, they simply shared who they were and what they had freely without calculation or expectation. And the unrighteous are shocked that they missed opportunities to show love to the king. Had they known God was in their midst, they would have done the right thing. The king is looking for a natural outflowing of love, not calculated efforts to project a certain image. This is the kind of love Jesus came to demonstrate and share. Think about that. It's the difference between, on the one hand, doing something extemporaneously as a natural outflowing of love versus doing something in order to avoid punishment or reap a reward. The purpose of this gospel passage the purpose of all gospel passages is transformation. This passage is not meant to motivate you to do the right thing in order to win a reward, and neither is it meant to scare you into avoiding doing wrong things in order to avoid punishment. The purpose of this gospel, the purpose of all the gospels, is transformation, change. The king is looking for a natural outflowing of love, not calculated efforts to project a certain image. There's a scene in the Jennifer Aniston Vince Vaughn movie, The Breakup, that captures this spirit pretty well, where the Jennifer Aniston character tells the Vince Vaughn character, I, I don't want you to do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. We don't want you to come to church. We don't want you to get involved in a ministry. We don't want you to, to read the Bible daily. We don't want you to fill out a pledge card and support the church financially. We want you to want to come to church. We want you to want to get involved in a ministry. We want you to want to read the Bible daily. We want you to want to support the church financially. The purpose of this gospel, the purpose of all the gospels, and for that matter, the purpose of worship, of liturgy, of Bible reading, of prayer, of giving our time, of giving our money, the purpose of all Christianity is transformation, change. To transform us into people who have a natural, non-individualistic, non-arrogant, non-inward outflow of love. We are to be people who are being transformed every day, with God's help, into people who naturally seek to serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And that is a church and a Christianity that people are drawn to and want to be part of.